The starting point is I want my kids to walk into a space and be seen as fully human. That's really it. And, and to not have their, yeah, not have their humanity and their intrinsic value and worth questioned because they have a disability. That's what I want. Hi, friends. I'm Tim Villegas from the Maryland Coalition for Inclusive Education, and you are listening to Think Inclusive, our podcast that brings you conversations about inclusive education and what inclusion looks like in the real world. Heather Avis is a author, speaker, and advocate for individuals with Down syndrome. She is the founder of The Lucky Few, a foundation that aims to shift the narrative around Down syndrome and create spaces of belonging for everyone. Heather shares her personal experience as a mother of three adopted children, two of whom have Down syndrome, and uses storytelling to challenge societal perceptions and promote inclusion. In this episode, Heather Avis emphasizes the importance of intentional inclusion and the need for a shift in the narrative around disability. She shares personal experiences as a parent and highlights the power of storytelling to change perceptions and create spaces of belonging. Heather also addresses the challenges of advocating for inclusion and the ongoing work needed to dismantle ableism. This week's episode is brought to you by Brooks Publishing. Do you believe that all children with and without disabilities deserve to reach their potential through inclusive education? If so, you will love Brooks Publishing, the premier publisher of books and tools on early childhood, special education, communication, and language, and more. Brooks Publishing has been partnering with top experts for over 30 years to bring you the best resources for your classroom, clinic, or home. To learn more, visit brookspublishing.com to browse their catalog, read their blog, and sign up for their newsletter. Brooks Publishing, helping you make a difference in the lives of all children. And just for Think Inclusive listeners, visit bit.ly slash brooks dash giveaway dash 1223 to put your name in to win a copy of Equitable and Inclusive IEPs for Students with Complex Support Needs by Andrea Rupar and Jennifer Kurth. We will be taking names until the end of the month. After a short break, my interview with Heather Avis. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. For those of uh, our listeners that don't know about the Lucky Few, if you could just explain what that is and all of the things that you have available for families. Definitely. Um, I So I, I live in Southern California with my family. I have a husband of 20, almost 21 years, and then three kids. My oldest is 15. Her name is Macy, and she has Down syndrome. My middle daughter is truly 12 years old, no disabilities, and my son is nine and also has Down syndrome. Um, All my kids came to me through adoption, all born in Southern California, all came to me as infants. These are like high level questions people want to know right away. Okay. (laughs) And um, prior to having a child with Down syndrome, I was also a special education teacher. I have a mild, moderate and moderate severe teaching credentials. And I taught resource at a high school and then moved over to their living skills program as a teacher for the living skills program at that same high school. Then when my oldest daughter, Macy, came home, I stopped working and I stayed home and and entered into a whole different world as an advocate for the disability community. It, being a parent to a disabled child versus loving my disabled students, is a, it was a very different experience for me, mm-hmm. radically mm-hmm. so. So Macy enters my world, and when we were adopting her, we heard about her in passing because we absolutely said no to a child with a disability. Um, she had a congenital heart defect. She had all these issues. She had pulmonary hypertension, was on oxygen 24-7. I mean, aside from Down syndrome, she was medically fragile. It's a very long story. But I, we end up saying yes to her, bring her home. And I'm whole, I have a moment holding her. I'm like, she's, she's an amazing baby. Like, what, what were we so terrified of? Why was this such a hard yes? Um, and realizing that out all the outside voices, even as a special education teacher, maybe especially so if I want to really pick it apart, we're saying having a disabled child is bad. No one's saying those words. Some people say those words out loud, but that's the messaging. This is yeah. bad. This is tragic. This is a sad story. Um, and then we have this baby with Down syndrome, and it and our lived experience with her is quite the opposite. Absolutely. There's hard moments, really, really hard moments. I think that just is parenting, but there are layers there having a child with Down syndrome that make it harder than it should be. I don't usually use the word should often, but I think it's appropriate here. Um, and, and having to like navigate that. Yes, that's true. But then having any kind of kid can be hard. And most of the things that are hard about having a child with Down syndrome have nothing to do with Down syndrome and everything to do with the system that rejects them um, and and doesn't work for them. And so learning all of that, so that's bringing Macy into our lives. And then 
I had a moment one day at the park. It's so clear to me where Macy was taught. She, she didn't walk till she was three. She would scoot on her butt. And so she's like kind of toddling around, scooting around. So I'm thinking she was around two and a half years old or so. And I'm at the park and there's all these moms with their kids. And I thought, Macy's the only kid here with Down syndrome. There's not one other kid here with Down syndrome. And I felt so lucky that she was mine. Like, mm. I get her. This kid gets to be my kid. Wow, I'm so lucky. And that really birthed this idea of shifting a narrative around Down syndrome that is negative and scary and bad to one that's like, actually, I'm really lucky. And and then interacting with so many people in the Down syndrome community, people with Down syndrome, their siblings, their grandparents, their parents who had a similar journey, a similar experience where something that was negative, then they're like, this isn't, I don't feel bad about this. Oh, I actually feel lucky. And that word kind of resonating with the Down syndrome community. Not everybody. I have met people in the community that don't feel that way and that's their own journey. But I would say 99%, 98% of the people I've interacted <laughs> with have a similar feeling. And so at around the same time, I started blogging and then social media, Instagram came on the scene and I started using the hashtag, the lucky few. So few of us have a loved one with Down syndrome, those of us who do are very lucky. Um, and you know, the first few posts, it's just our family, our family, and then like little other people start popping in and always connected to Down syndrome. And it just took off within the community, really the community, I feel like grabbed onto that, like, yes, this is how we feel. This is what it's like. Um, and so then it grew into a book deal. And then it, I had oppor- opportunities just came my way. I started speaking and started traveling and doing that whole circuit. Um, I have four published books now. And then it we had started a podcast called the Lucky Few Podcast in 2018. Um, and then we started a foundation that's really all about telling a, the bigger, fuller Down syndrome story so that people can see themselves in the narrative. We're really, the Lucky Few is yeah. all about shifting the Down syndrome narrative um, and creating a place in the world where everyone can belong. I believe that when, if one person doesn't belong, then actually nobody does. That belongings actually doesn't exist until everyone has it. And so telling a story that helps the society and systems and humans see the full humanity in a person with Down syndrome and hopefully open up their world to that person and create spaces of belonging for everybody. So those are the the areas that we, or that's how the lucky few came to be. And that's what we do in a nutshell. I, I love how you just, you you shared those specific vignettes of um you know being at the park and you know, you know uh, being at home um with Macy right mm-hmm, Macy that yeah. right um because i think storytelling is so important and it's really what changes people's minds i agree you know and moves narratives uh yeah. cha- changes people's perceptions um yeah. and uh, it, it's something that um, we say a lot in just our ad- advocacy of inclusive education is I could give you a stack of research that mm-hmm. says inclusive education is not only the right thing to do, but it benefits all learners. But that's not going to change how you view inclusive inclusive education. Mm-hmm. Um, you experiencing it yourself and hearing stories of it changing people's lives like yeah. that. It, that is what changes uh, systems. And, and so anyways, I just, that resonated with me and I'm just so happy that 
you were in the world doing what you're doing. So, um, (laughs) yeah, I think storytelling is the thing that connects the human one human's heart to another and gives you, I think that, that it's a piece of it. I mean, you have, you can't know what you don't know. So it opens up, it's an invitation into understanding something you didn't understand before that relationship piece, I think is catalyst for the real, real change to happen. But I think the story is the, the invitation to a relationship in some regard. Um, and that's why, and I think too, in in like such a, we're just immersed in social media and there's such a comparison and the amount of people I've met that are like, well, I don't have a good story to tell, or my story is not as good as, or my story is not as important as it's like, no, no, no. Everybody has a story to tell. You have to tell it. Like saying to the teachers who for the first time had my kid with Down syndrome, they've taught 30 years. They've never had a kid with Down syndrome. I'm like you have to tell your, you have to tell the story. However you do it, you're going to tell a really good story because it's yours and no one else can tell it. So here, write it down here. I'll share it. You know, like let people just need a platform and a little like nudge to know, like, you don't have to be a professional writer or storyteller. Your story is uniquely yours. And that makes it so important. No one can tell it. So do it, tell it. Cause it's so That's important. right. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're listening and you have a, I mean, every, like you said, I love that you, you said that everyone has a story to tell. Everyone has a story to tell. And so, yes, you do have a story to tell. And um, whether you share that you know, with your uh, friends and neighbors and family members, or, you know, with, with us, and we will amplify that. Just mm-hmm. please, please just tell your story. Yeah. Um, so you've been pretty open about this idea of intentional inclusion. And I'd love for you to unpack that phrase for us. Um, what does that mean to you? And like, in practical terms, like how can, you know, families really live out this intentional inclusion? Um, I think I've been learning too. I've, I have talked about being intentional with inclusion, like you said, and I've even been growing in that area and, and would challenge myself. I think the challenge I'm living now is what's the impact of that? Like the impact of the decisions we're making, not just trying to be intentional, but understanding what the impact is when we are intentional in the space. Um, Mm -hmm. I think it's, if you don't think through that, then you can get tripped up in the outcomes, but Inclusion doesn't just happen in systemic settings. Um, And even within like a family unit, it's not just going to happen. You have to be intentional in it. If you are, I think, I think there's two pieces as a family, as a family with disability, we have to be really thoughtful. So intentional being thoughtful about where we put our energy and our time and our resources and and physically our children. We have to be thoughtful about that. It can't just be like drop them off at a camp and then drive away because then we're setting people up for failure. Um, But I think even more so when I talk about intentional inclusion, it's for those who who have the spaces in which people are excluded. So in an educational setting, inclusion doesn't work unless inclusive practices are in place. That essentially would be, right, inclusive in intentional inclusion. You have to think through the how how a space and a program and a system works or doesn't for somebody and then intentionally or thoughtfully adjust, make changes, try things out. Um is basically how I would just define and describe intentional inclusion. I think then to think past that, like what's the impact of those decisions? What what could the outcome be of those decisions that it's not because I think what 
if you just stop with intentionality, then you could risk like tokenism even where it's like, Mm. we're just checking a box. So in this DEI, this diversity, equity, inclusion movement that's happening right now, I think that it's, um, this is just my opinion and people will disagree. I'm sure I it's time. Like I'm grateful for it. And if it's not done intentionally with the impact of those choices being thought through, then we, now we're just checking more boxes and those for whom it's supposed to serve may end up being um, further discriminated against or their humanity even stripped further away because now there's just more boxes to check. So mm-hmm. I find that in the disability, like in the Down syndrome space, we try to be intentional with making sure we're telling a diverse story. So specifically that we're not just telling the story of a bunch of white families, you know, like mm-hmm. that it's that we're telling the bigger whole story. But then I have to make sure in doing that, am I just checking a box? Like, well, we've got these different families, check, 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 and then moving on. Or am I realizing like, what's the impact of this decision that I'm making? Um, How is this going? Like, does it stop here? Do we keep going? Do we like, how are people going to process it? So that's, that's what I'm thinking through when I say intentional inclusion. Yeah. Um, uh, that's so <laughs> that's so real <laughs> about the just the checking the boxes um uh, and it's hard because i i if coming from um you know an educational system where everyone is so uh stretched thin and just um burnt out mm-hmm. it's it's really easy to be like okay did i did i check all the boxes like, did I do all the things? Um, and, um, and I'm sure it's, it's the same for families. You know, everyone is just so tired, you know, we're so um, tired. <laughs> <laughs> so tired. It's too much. Exactly. It's too much. <laughs> we did a campaign, a back to school campaign last year in 2022 with gap kids. It was a really cool opportunity. I wrote a children's book called Everyone Belongs. And through just different circumstances, we were introduced to some people at Gap in 2019 and then um, have maintained relationships. So I pitched them a back-to-school campaign called Everyone Belongs and based off my children's book. And they did this beautiful campaign with the most disabled people they've ever had in a campaign represented. And, And it was it was interesting to watch and to be a part of it because they are their bottom line at the end of the day, they need to sell a shirt, right? Like they need to sell a, an item. And this is why DEI is so interesting in the media to me is it's like the the bottom line is money and that's just how it is. And it's not about changing lives. Even if the people involved want that to be it, their bosses want to make money. And so I get that. And so there's a place, it's a can become a fine dance, but it was interesting to watch and be a part of it because seeing how, they had to be intentional, like really intentional to do it well. And part of that was to bring me in to like help them process through and think through what does this mean to have a set where you've got people with limb differences and wheelchair users and people who are visually impaired and and people who are deaf and with cochlear implants and, you know, like so many different and people with Down syndrome, so many different disabilities on a set and a lot of people without disabilities on a set. Um so they had to really be intentional in that and making it inclusive. They had to shift things the way that they would normally do a project. And then I think through the like the, the idea of the impact of it, there was a short-term impact. But I think because 
maybe Gap stopped it being intentional. And I'm not trying to, I'm not being paid by Gap by any means or trying to throw them under the bus or whatever. It's, I think this happens with all kinds of brands and in classrooms and in families. But I don't know that they thought through the impact because once it was done, it was done. And I haven't seen them be that diverse since in any other mm-hmm. campaigns. You see what I mean? Yeah. So they're, so, and I don't know that the people went home from that moment, the cast and the staff and the producers and the people who run Gap and things shifted for them. I hope so. But it's kind of like if you stop at intentional, that was a rad campaign. And then it was yeah. a moment that did have impact on people, but did it impact the greater organization? Does that make sense? Like, Absolutely. And Absolutely. I don't know that it did. I don't see that. I don't see it yeah. moving forward. What, so what comes... To, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, what what comes to mind is this. Uh, what's uh, been in the news lately for me in my feed is these pilot inclusion programs. So I don't know if you've uh, heard of what's happening in, in Brooklyn, in New York, New York City, um, but like literally two days, uh, an article in New York Times and an article yeah. in Chalkbeat. Um. Uh, we're highlighting these uh, programs, these pilot inclusion programs for students with, uh, you know, more extensive support needs and which is great, like wonderful. Um, But I'll tell you, Heather, I was part of a pilot inclusion program in my school district in 2009, 10. And is my district any more inclusive because of that pilot inclusion program? No. Oh my gosh, Tim. It's <laughs> really oh I mean I'm not surprised that feels like a familiar story. It's like I meet I, from Pasadena, I meet these parents whose children are 30 in their 30s, right? Mason's 15. They they were at the game of inclusion way before Macy was, fighting for it, trailblazing, and 15 years later. I'm doing the same thing. Like they they worked so hard. What is missing? Tim, what is missing? I've got my theories. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, Heather. Well, so <laughs> um, the short answer is we need uh, we need a commitment from dis- from a district leadership, from district mm. leadership to to make changes. And in our organization, um, you know, which is the Maryland Coalition for Inclusive Education, Um, I came on as director of communications in 2020, but we've been doing this work in Maryland since, you know, the early nineties, uh, and the districts that we've worked with, they've sustained, uh, change over 20 years. So, and it's, you know, it's not just in Maryland, there's, there's pockets of districts all across the country that have uh, changed and have kept the change, you know, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. by change, I mean, not only are um, learners with disabilities and, and learners with ex- more extensive support needs included for you know ninety percent or more of their day, but also you know you have special and general education teachers collaborating. You have parents that are engaged in their community. Um, you know learners ride the same bus as everyone else. Like all learners ride the same bus. There's no special ed or general ed bus. You know mm-hmm. all buses are accessible. Um, you know there's just a culture that needs to change. And so that, I think that's the biggest thing. When I see pilot inclusion programs, I'm like, yay, it's great. But what really sustains a change is a district committing 
to, um, you know, long-term, um, uh, long-term changes that are, are, are going to affect all learners. And it's not just about students with disabilities. It's, you know, any students that, that have been historically marginalized. So that you're talking about a lot of different identities there, yep. um, because it's all intersectional. So, yes. so yeah, I think that is where, you know, that's where we need to focus is, you know, uh, targeting school leaders, principals, um, associate superintendents, superintendents, um, people who are not seeped in the special ed lingo. Um, because t- typically if you're in that, um, in that world, you have a very specific view of, of how learners with disabilities have to be educated. Mm-hmm. So we really need to get everyone else on board. There's more of them than there are of, of special education teachers. Like I, I remember I interviewed um, a principal in LA. You may be familiar with um, uh, Chime. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So um, Aaron Studer, um, I visited a few years ago and I'll never forget this. Like we were sitting at his, in his uh, office and, you know, I've got my little recorder on there, you know, and, and we're just talking and, and he's like, you know, if it's just a matter of getting all the special education personnel on board with inclusion, we'll never win because there's like, just by sheer numbers, there are more educators who aren't in that special education department than there, than there are. Right. So we really need to be focusing on everyone else. And I'm like, wow, that makes so much sense. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, talk about intentional inclusion is chime. It's a school built with like on inclusive practice. Like that is how it was built. The whole thing you're talking about these charter schools. It, my first thing is what is the foundation on which it's being built? What is the foundation? Because if you haven't ripped up that ableist thinking and haven't taken all that out, then you're just building on a foundation that's not going to work. And then it, yeah, then it's going to be a cool little program, but how do we create a new foundation on which to build these inclusive programs? Yeah. Yeah. And I Uh, love, I love chime and I love, um, all the charters that are committed to inclusion. Um, I just, I just want, you know, you talked about impact, right? You know, intentional inclusion. And then what's the impact? Um, I just wish they had more impact on sure. the the larger educational systems because we just, in my view, we don't need another pilot program and we don't need another charter school that, mm. that proves inclusion works. It does. Like it we've does. known it. So. Um, oh my gosh. Yeah, uh, anyways. Talk about all these things forever. <laughs> real quick, real quick. My kids, um, we have a school. Well, we can talk about our schools in our district and it's a whole thing. California, I mean, you are probably familiar. We are just really failing when it comes to inclusion. California is not, I think we're like the fourth from the bottom or something in some recent study that was done. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And we feel it as a family. I mean, we have felt it from the time my kid entered preschool, my oldest, but we have a charter school in our community that starts at seventh grade. It's seventh through 12th grade. There's 250 kids, 7th through 12th grade. It's this tiny little school that the Montessori school feeds into. So it's a lottery system 
And both of my my middle daughter, Truly, will be in seventh. And my daughter, Mason, will be in ninth. And they both got in. It literally is like winning the lottery. This is our third year trying to get in. Wow. And so it's like this exciting thing. And then also, hey, let's talk about this. And then it's like, oh, yeah, Mason's the second kid with Down syndrome in 30 years to go to this school. And I'm like, what? I don't want to do this. Like, I don't want to be the one. I'm, I'm so tired. It, what is happening? You know? How is this possible? <laughs> yeah, anyway, yeah. Well, yeah. Decide. No, you, <laughs> yes, you won. I won. And then it's you like, well, wait. And our all, and then our alternative is a high school with 2,500 students, 2,500 students, which she would be in a living skills program. And if we were to, quote, fight for her to be a full member of her school and included in her school, they, I just know them too well. It's where I taught. It would be for show. It would be for show. It would be to check a box. It would be to make me happy because I've got my lawyer on my right hand side. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And then, so then, so these are our choices. Like what is happening here? Anyways, this is my, this is our reality right now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry. And what made me think of that is what you said. So I only connect it. I said to the head of schools at this charter, this is being done because you just said this inclusion is being done well in many, many places. There's no need, no need to reinvent the wheel here. There's so many people you can learn from and so many practices that you can instill that are already happening, proven this works, you know, like that idea of, and he's like, that's great. Where is it? I'm like, okay, I'll help, but I'm tired, <laughs> <laughs> but it exists. It exists. It does. It does. It does. And, um, I was thinking about this when you were talking about um, the gap campaign. I, I think that in general, and maybe it's just because I'm more like the uh, half glass full kind of person, but I, I do see it more and more like mm-hmm. intentional inclusion and um, a mindset of acceptance. Mm-hmm. Uh, overall, now there's definitely pushback, um, in all the different kinds of identities, right? Yeah. Um, but ten years ago, twenty years ago, it wasn't like this. Mm-hmm. So I am hopeful. Um, I'm I am hopeful. Um, but but there's still we just have so much work to do, and. Yeah. We can't stop. We can't stop working. But yeah, um, I I agree with you. I am also very hopeful, and you can see the growth and the change. I mean, I, you can just see it and know that and understand it. Um, I I get a little cynical. I think because I'm tired. Honestly, my daughter, my oldest, is 15, and this time of life is hard for any 15 year old girl. And the the lack of relationship and and space for her in the world is. Uh, heartbreaking. It's devastating. And I'm exhausted, but I also feel that we're making a lot of progress, but there's little ways that we're missing it that I, oh, this is a whole other thing, Tim, that I think even in, I will say this because I'm in the Down syndrome space, like the Down syndrome space even is perpetuating ableism in their own ways because we haven't undone it in ourselves. I think that parents raising disabled kids who aren't disabled themselves just because you have a disabled child doesn't mean you've undone ableism in your own life. And it doesn't mean, and it's a, it's a process and it takes a lot of work and a lot of effort and a lot of disabled voices in your ear. Um, 
And I think we get into this, we as parents advocating for our disabled kids, we get into this space of like, we know, we know, we know, we know what our kid needs. And we do to a certain extent, but their lived reality and the way that systems are going to include them or not is so different than ours. And I didn't, it took me about five years to even recognize my own ableism um, because I didn't think I could have that and have a disabled kid. It's like my middle daughter is black. Just because I have a black child as a white person doesn't make me not racist. Like you have to do the hard work. And so I think we're moving really, maybe as we're moving forward in creating more inclusive spaces and having this world that's more inclusive, so many people fighting that fight, I don't think have done the hard work of undoing ableism in their own life. So then we perpetuate it by highlighting stories like the prom stuff, you know, where it's like, look at this sweet kid with Down syndrome invited to prom by their non-disabled peer. And then you bring that up and everyone's like, why are you so sensitive to this? This is such a kind thing. And there's all this like, oh, there's a lot of work that needs to be done as we move forward. And I don't. I know. I I think it's a missing piece. I think there's a big piece missing as we're pushing for inclusion. It's like, but we're doing it in a way that we haven't ripped up this foundation of ableism in our own lives. So we're building on top of it instead of taking, doing it. Absolutely. And uh, yeah. And I don't, you know, you talk about like, I I sense the, um, um, just the being tired because, (laughs) (laughs) because like, for instance, these, um, you know, examples that come across, you know, in my, in newsletters and, you know, in social media, um, and and there's a, there's a part of me that goes like, I should address this. I should talk to people about this and why it's wrong. But I'm like, I just, I'm so tired of, of writing and talking about it. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and then pointing it out and then people saying, why are you being so sensitive? You know, yeah. or, you know, why, you know, can't you just let this be okay? Like, uh, I'll give you an example. So, and this comes from my own district. Um, and if you've listened to me long enough, you know exactly who, what district that is. Uh, <laughs> they, they, they put out, a, they put out a, um, like a, a blog article, you know, on their, on their website about a student at a local elementary school, um, who was in a, who is in a, um, segregated self-contained class for students with, with autism, um, at a, at a school and how wonderful it was that he, you know, would visit other general education classrooms. And isn't it so wonderful? Um, he just lights everyone's, you know, he has such an infectious smile and he's so sweet and isn't it so nice that he gets to visit classrooms and spend time in general ed. And then he goes back to his, you know, class and he learns life skills. And, um, and this was the shining example of inclusion, you know? And I'm just like, (sighs) (laughs) and, uh, and so I really hesitated. I mean, I did say something, but I, you know, there's just a part of me that's like, I just don't want to be that person, you know, I to know. be like, to be like, what are you doing? You know, cause that inside I am, I'm like, what, what are you doing? Like, right. this is not inclusion. I'm sorry. 
what you think you're doing is good. Like it may feel good mm-hmm. um, that you're doing something, but that something, like what you said, is just building on top of the ableist ideas that you already have. Yeah. Um, and so like, how do you address that? Especially in like your own community, right. you know, with, with friends that are educators in, in, in that school and in that district, it's just yeah. like, uh, <laughs> it's so much. I think that, oh gosh, that relationship piece is so key. We have a really good friend who runs a center for racial reconciliation and he puts a lot of stuff into the world that that can make true things that make people feel uncomfortable because it's true and hard to hear. Right. And he'll get pushback from people about stuff. And his big thing is he will always, if he can invite them for coffee. So you're saying in your own community, like, would you like to grab a coffee? And then you can sit and have a conversation. That's kind of where I, I don't draw my line there, but I'm cautious. If I can meet with someone at my school, with the principal, with the teacher, with whoever, the PTA, whoever wrote the thing, if you can sit down in person and have a conversation, yes, it's a lot of energy, but I think that's an opportunity for real relationship and growth and learning to happen versus writing a blog post or an Instagram post yeah. and then all the like people coming at you. That's hard. That is a different kind of energy that I don't know how productive it is. I don't know how productive. I mean, I yeah, think it, yeah. but yeah. And oh, I would yeah. also like to acknowledge, cause you did say about like your, you know, undoing your own ableism. Like I make mistakes all the time, you know? And, uh, I actually just made, I actually just made a big one, uh, which I'm not gonna, I'm not really going to get into, but I was can not, I was made aware of my mistake and it was very uncomfortable, mm-hmm. but you know, we talked about it. Um, the people, you know, the, the individuals, uh, that, brought it to my attention and, you know, and I apologized and I, I'm not sure if we're ever going to get back to where we were, but I'm grateful for that because I need to grow, you know, and I'm, I'm going to make more mistakes. So it's a journey. Yeah. It's not a snap of the fingers. It's a journey and it will absolutely involve mistakes. And so then you, my big thing is when you make a mistake, you can either, lean into it and grow or shy away from it and stay and probably grow bitter in bitterness. I don't know. Um, but that leaning into it is so uncomfortable and that's yeah. what growth is. Growth is uncomfortable and, but you can't grow without it. So it's really imperative too. Um, well, we've gone way off for our questions, but, uh, oh <laughs> <laughs> um, do you have, let's see, uh, I, I think, you know, we talked about the expectations of, you know, going to this charter school um, and just the the energy it takes to you know, advocate for your children um, or for your students uh, in, in regards to inclusion. Um, but for you, when you think about like an ideal educational experience for your kids, like like, what do you imagine? What do you picture? Yeah, it's it's really simple. The starting point is I want my kids to walk into a space and be seen as fully human. That's really it. And and to not have their, yeah, not have their humanity and their intrinsic value and worth questioned because they have a disability. That's what I want. And I think if you start there, which I think is the starting point for 
any person who walks into space and doesn't wear their disability on their body, on their face. That's the starting point. Um, then I think we can make huge progress. So that's my that's my goal. And I don't know that, and not to be a pessimist, I'm I'm not a pessimist. Okay, everybody, I'm not a pessimist. <laughs> I am a pragmatist. Um, I am, yes. And I do think that we are making a lot of progress. I, I think what my kids with Down syndrome, Mason and August, what they deserve um, in any setting that they step into is not in their lifetime. I just think that's the reality. I think there will be one-offs, like there'll be pockets, but for them to go to their community dance class, for them to walk into a classroom at their community school, for them to walk into a church, for them to walk down the sidewalk and be seen as fully human and be seen as a person that's valuable and worthy to to exist in their communities and be seen as someone that is that others want to embrace because of their differences, not in spite of them. Um, I think that is 30 to 40 years in the future. And... Mm. And I think it's worth working for. I think that it's worth working towards. And so then I, as a, there's that advocate mind for me. And you had said this at the beginning of our conversation, like the choosing to put my kid in a self-contained classroom, right? Like that idea. I think I'm just going to go there for a minute, if that's okay with you. Absolutely. Um, I, as a, I think in the Down syndrome space specifically, which is the space that I'm in the most, there is a huge push for inclusion. And at least where I, every community I was in from the time my child was a baby, it's like people in the Down syndrome space are inclusion, inclusion, education, inclusive education, inclusive education. You fight, 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 fight. This is the way it should be, period, full stop. And I don't disagree with those things. And and it's just not that, it's not, no one's saying it's easy, but it's not that attainable for a lot of families. And even within the Down syndrome space, there's this idea that there's a best way to have Down syndrome. And that's usually being more like people without Down syndrome. So we're going to celebrate people with Down syndrome who can go to college, live alone, get their driver's license, um, hold a job, speak clearly, hang out in the playground, win the awards. Those people with Down syndrome, that person with Down syndrome gets to be in this, in included, right? Mm-hmm. And they... And because there's an ease to it because they're more like people without Down syndrome in the in that way. So then it's not inclusion for people with Down syndrome. It's inclusion for people who can fit into the mold of people without Down syndrome or people without disabilities. So that conversation's not being had. And then I've got a kid with Down syndrome who isn't those things. She's not. And she's incredible. So does she not deserve a space in the in the gen ed setting or with her peers and every everywhere she goes? And I, she does. She deserves to be there as well. Um, but it's going to look so different for her. And so there's like that piece of the battle. But in my head, there was never, it's always been bad for my kid to be in a separate segregated program. Mm-hmm. And what the problem with that that I found was we got to a point not just where her her dad and I are feeling pretty traumatized by our experience of having to continually convince people that she has value and worth, mm-hmm. um, how the weight of that and what that does to a parent needs to be acknowledged by by parents and by those around us that this is a heavy, heavy thing to hold, to have to prove to someone that your child is valuable and has worth. It's so heavy and traumatizing. It really is. But aside from that, my daughter is walking into a space with a sixth sense in which she can read a room and she can tell just like the vibes in a room 
in a way that I can't, the trauma that I'm putting her through by continually placing her in places where maybe the adults don't want her there. And there's a literal fight for her to not be there where her peers don't know what to do with her. And the leader, the foundation, like underneath foundationally and the leadership trickling down, nobody is saying, look at this child who is fully human as she is with Down syndrome. We're so happy she's here. And so if nobody's, if that's not the overall idea around her being in a space and I send her there day after day, week after week, school year after school year, what is that doing to her little heart, right? And that she doesn't have the verbal, um, the way that she communicates isn't in a way that I'm going to understand her completely. So there's, she's got that going too, right? Like we're working through that. So I don't even know that I'm understanding how she's explaining that. So I can look at her behavior and different pieces to help me understand that. And so we got to a point in middle school where it was like, not only am I done fighting this fight and trying to prove now, because we don't have one teacher, we now have six teachers. We don't have 30 kids. We now have, what's six times 30? I don't know, a lot of kids that we're trying to prove this to. <laughs> um, what, what is that doing to her little heart, right? Mm-hmm. Like when I'm getting these phone calls that Macy doesn't want to walk into her choir class, it's like, okay, everybody in the room And everybody involved is looking at it like this is Mason's problem. And I'm thinking this is everyone's problem, but Mason's problem. And, and how do, is it even realistic to convince everybody involved that, 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 that is the truth. And so what, I'm going to keep sending her there. So it was this decision of the, excuse me, the safest place for Macy that year was either out of school completely um, or but we, my husband and I both work and there's a lot of logistics when it comes to homeschooling or not, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think it's a great option if it's an option. I think it can be a great option. Um, But the other option is this self-contained living skills class where she will understand that she's being othered by being in that space because she's communicated that to us in her ways. And at the same time, she's in a room with people who she doesn't have to constantly prove that she is allowed to be there. That's where yeah. she's allowed to be. And yeah. we just can't underestimate that, I think, for our kids. There, it's a both and. We need to fight for it and we need to protect their hearts and their minds. Yeah. And um, and I think that that's, a, that's my biggest job as a parent. You know, it's my, my job is to parent my children and do what's best for them far more than it is to advocate for change in a system. Um, hopefully both can be happening simultaneously, but my priority is my kids and their heart. And so that's, I felt really pushed into a corner and then literally pushed into a corner (laughs) and she just needed a break, right? Like we all needed a break. Then there was, once we did that, I can look back and realize like what we gave up, what we were forced to give up in order for that to happen is, it's just horrible. And we didn't ever get it back in terms of like logistics on her IEP. You know, um, mm-hmm. we never got it back because the district um, pulled one over on us and then it was a whole thing. So, yeah. Yeah. So it's like once you agree to certain things, you know, then it's like, well, you agreed to it. So, right. You know, why would you like, there's no data <laughs> right. to prove that the student can, you know, learn or grow, make progress in 
this other setting, you know? So I, I think this is such an important conversation because it's not just, um, I mean, I know you're talking specifically about, about, um, your child and, and the conversations in the, in, in the down syndrome community, but you know, it's the same conversation in, you know, for, uh, learners on the autism spectrum, Sure, you know, and also Mm -hmm. for, you know, learners who have behavior challenges, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I came from a district that had three separate programs, autism, intellectual disability, and um, behavior disorder is what they were called, EBD or some emotional mm-hmm. behavior disorder. Three separate classes. So at, at any one point, you could go to a um, – well, it didn't happen at every school, but potentially you could go to a school and there could be an autism room, um, an intellectual disabilities classroom, and an EBD classroom. Yeah. Um, and all of these students were separated and they, they, that, that wasn't their homeschool. That was right. their, you know, they were bused from right. other parts, you know, and it was, you know, their, their regional programs, but you're still talking about like, that's not their community. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. Um, and, and if the program isn't in place, yes, we're going to, there's such a push for inclusion and rightfully so. But if what your child needs doesn't exist, then I just have compassion for the moms and dads and caregivers who are like, then I have to put my kid on a bus and bus them to this separate classroom that's segregated. Because the alternative is fight, 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 fight uh, in so many districts. And you're not fighting even specifically for your child to be included. You're fighting for them to be seen as fully human. It's a different way to look at the conversation. It's a different fight. You know, it's a different fight. And it's... um and I don't think we're talking enough about how that takes a toll on parents and caregivers and their children. And that all of it, all of the blame is on our kid with a disability. And it's like, well, you inclusion, your kid can be included once they are, once they can, once they do. It's like, well, no, that's not inclusion. That's making <laughs> them be somebody else, right? right? Like you don't earn inclusion. That's not how we, that's how inclusion is. You know this. But yes. that's how so many programs are set up. Like if your kid can do this, then they then they've earned a spot in a classroom. Like, well, that I don't I don't know how we can keep having this conversation without looking at what damage that's doing to like the psyche of our disabled kids and students and parents and caregivers. Yeah. I just need to take a breath. Anyways, so we're out. <laughs> I'm done. I'm done with school. This is what happens when I start going on. We're done. We're leaving. We're moving to an island. Y'all, we're missing out on my kids. So that's your loss. <laughs> your loss. Oh. But honestly, like we're taking our kids out of the public school, out of our public schools and putting them in this charter, and it could be a hot mess. And part of me, what I would love, like you said, what do you want? What does it look like for me? What what it looks like is the school district saying, no, don't take Macy from us. We need her. We need Mason exactly as she is. She's such a gift to our community. Please don't take her. Please let us have her. That's what we need because she is, and it's hard. And she doesn't do school like everyone else does school. But at the end of the day, she is a gift. She is an invitation to seeing the world in a whole different way, to seeing our um, her intrinsic value and worth. And then you see, and then it reflects back on you, right? It's, she's a gift and invitation to say people with disabilities are intrinsically valuable and worthy. 
well, maybe I am too. So is this kid. It it changes your whole world. She's a gift and an invitation. And that's what I want her to be seen as. Stay tuned for the mystery question right after this break. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Okay, so this is a, this, it shouldn't be controversial. So what was the most memorable class you've ever taken in school or college? Oh, okay. I need to think about this because this is a recall. Yeah. So um, let me think. Um, memorable class. Memorable. Um, one comes to mind, but it's, it, it's more of like my, it's kind of like my origin story, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess I'll go with that. Cause that's the, you that's always that. the one that comes. So, uh, I, I went to Azusa Pacific university, mm-hmm. um, and I, I majored in psychology and the last class that I took my senior year was called the psychology of the exceptional child. And I thought I was going to learn about gifted kids. And so I, a little bit about me is I went to private school like my entire career. So preschool through kindergarten. And I like to say college too, because APUs, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> a private school anyways. And so one of the, one of the assignments that I had was to visit a special education classroom, like a local in Azusa, uh, Azusa, Azusa Unified. And <clears throat> so I, I went and visited a classroom um, and I was, expe- I don't know what I was expecting, but I did not mm. like, I did not expect to see what I saw, which was, it was just a small group of kids in a math class. It was like a middle school, sixth grade, seventh grade um, algebra. And I don't know if, I don't think they do algebra, uh, but it was just math. And there was a teacher and he had a Hawaiian shirt on. And he just, it was just like chill. It was like super chill. You know, they were doing some assignments and I'm like, what is special about this? Like, that's just, it's smaller, you know, but I don't, I don't get it. I don't get 
what this special education thing is. Because number one, I had no context for it. And number two, I was just like, I just don't know what is so different about this. And mm-hmm. so when I left, it was more like, I'm just going to file that away. And, you know, I finished my class and I learned about assessment and I learned about, you know, the law and all this stuff. But I had no intention of being a special education teacher. I graduated with a degree in psychology and I was like, well, I guess I'm going to, you know, graduate school. But I, uh, my first job out of school was, a behavior therapist, because I was like, that sounds interesting, you know, for, for young children with autism. And so that was, that was it. That was my, you know, so that actually was like my first, it it was my entry point. (laughs) Nice. That's good. That's a good story. Um, I, I, this isn't my answer, but I TA'd my high school senior year elective was to TA at a in a special education classroom. Really, um, I went off campus every day, mm-hmm. and that was a big one for me. That could be mine. That was impactful. This was memorable. Wasn't the question what was your most memorable class? Yes, memorable. Okay, yes. this is a hard left. I was I went to Sonoma State University in Northern California, and I was a, it's a very liberal school. I was a liberal studies major in a program called Hutchins, which there's very few Hutchins programs that existed around the nation, and it's an interdisciplinary program where your classes were like ten people and a professor, and you just read a ton of books and wrote a ton of papers and had tons of discussions about things. Oh, that yeah, was like the, yeah. the meat of it. It was such a good program. I loved it. And then there was a science, the science classes. <laughs> and my most memorable class was called um, um, Life on Mars was the science class. And it was this professor who was straight from a movie character, like like crazy hair and all, and or like wild hair. And he taught an entire semester on life on Mars <laughs> and if it could happen or not. And that was my science class. And I just remember being in that class, like, how am I paying for this? And how is this a real course? Every time, once a week, I thought, <laughs> how is this real? So it's very memorable. Zimmerman, that was his name. Zimmerman. Zimmerman. That's amazing. That's <laughs> life on Mars. <laughs> oh, my oh, goodness. Yep. Oh, wow. Heather Avis. Thank you so much for having an amazing conversation with me on the Think Inclusive podcast. Thank you for having me. We ran out of time for free time this week, but stay tuned for next week if you like that segment. For more information about inclusive education or to learn how you can partner with MCIE on school transformation or professional learning opportunities, visit MCIE.org. Thanks again to Brooks Publishing for sponsoring this episode of Think Inclusive. Love Think Inclusive? Here are a few ways to let us know. Rate us on Spotify or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Become a patron like these fine people and get extra stuff. Thank you to Aaron P, Jarrett T, Joyner A, Kathy B, Mark C, Gabby M, and Kathleen T. We appreciate your continued support of Think Inclusive. Think Inclusive is written, edited, designed, mixed, and mastered by me, Tim Viegas. Original music by Miles Kredich. Additional music from Melody. Thanks for your time and attention. And remember, inclusion always works.
I live I live in a community or an area called the Inland Empire, which is about an hour east of Pasadena. And yep. then in 2000 and something, almost 10 years ago, eight years ago, we moved to the Pasadena area. So when I moved there, I had a eight-month-old baby with Down syndrome and a five-year-old daughter with Down syndrome. And then, yeah, Club 21 is um, just an incredible organization. Oh, so we started attending. I already was blogging. Um, I didn't have my – my first book wasn't out yet. But I was I was blogging. I was on social media and was in the Down syndrome space as an advocate and ally and then connected with Club 21 as a resource for me personally as with my family. Uh, oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Nancy Littikin, Um, So Joy uh, Domingo yeah. uh, is a really good friend of ours. We used to go to um, Foothills Community Church, um, my wife and I, when we lived. We lived in Pasadena. Oh, okay. This is – okay. So you – when did you live out here? So – I, well, I grew up in Southern California, so oh my gosh, uh, okay. we, we moved in 2008. Okay, there you go. Yeah. To East Coast? To Atlanta, yes. Wow. And now Atlanta's home. From MCIE. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.